This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Michael Dennis is a PhD student at the Center for Human Compatible AI at UC Berkeley. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me. So how do you describe uh, your area of interest? Yeah, so I'm mostly interested in robustness in RL and multi-agent RL, specifically as it applies to making the interactions between AI systems and society at large more beneficial. And and how did you come uh, upon that? Yeah, so it's a bit of a, a long journey. Um, so I guess in undergrad, I did an internship that involved a little bit of light penetration testing. And I was already interested in AI for a long time. And it got me thinking about sort of all the ways that AI systems could go wrong. So for instance, you could imagine an AI being used to sort of um, automatically do some sort of penetration testing through like maybe automated fuzzing. And this could cause like hackers to be able to sort of drastically increase the amounts of attacks they could do. Um, or you could imagine, I guess, sort of what we're seeing now where like content from like GPT-3 and like uh, GANs and stuff like that is making it uh, or has risk of making it seem harder to detect what's true and, and false online. Um, and I guess concerns about this sort of drove me to thinking about like the intersections between AI and society at large more more uh, specifically. And I guess to me, the multi-agent interaction is sort of the core of all of these problems. It's, it's sort of these problems arise from how AI systems and people uh, interact and how the incentives of both of these systems or both like the AI systems and the people sort of drive this interaction into places that either we want it to go or we don't want it to go. So I've been thinking more about the notion of like following one's interests. And, and obviously I, I share some of your interests and that's why I wanted really wanted to have you on the show. And I'm, I'm so glad you came. Um, but the idea of how our interests evolve over time and, and why they evolve and, and sometimes it feels like our, my curiosity is like almost like a mind of its own and I'm just along for the ride. Like, how does that work for you? Um, can, can you say anything about the process of how your interests uh, like evolve over time? You ever think about that? I guess initially I was trying to figure out more how I wanted my work to impact the world. But more recently, I've now that I've been like sort of focused more on like multi-agent and AI sort of stuff. I find that my research is more driven by attempts to resolve my own confusion and that I usually focus more on that than trying to figure out whether something is directly publishable. Uh, because I guess, uh, yeah, I, I think I just find being confused fairly annoying. And I find that this is a pretty good heuristic for me where if I can become less confused myself, it feels sort of like the first step towards clarifying the issues I care about for the rest of the field. So can you tell us a bit about the hum- the Center for Human Compatible AI? And, and how do you interpret um, human compatible AI? Yeah, so the, the Center for Human Compatible AI is uh, a set of, of groups who, uh, who work on research trying to make uh, AI, I guess, more human compatible. Um, and I guess I interpret this fairly broadly to mean that I want the to make systems that uh, make the intersection, like the interaction between AI systems and society, uh, more likely to be uh, beneficial. Um, and so this could be anything from not increasing the prevalence of misinformation to ensuring that your personal assistant does what you actually want it to do. Okay, so let's segue to your co-author paper, um, adversarial policies. Uh, attacking deep reinforcement learning by Gleave et al. in 2019. That seems emblematic of, of the kind of topics that Chai focuses on, if that makes sense. Can you tell us a bit about that paper? Yeah, so th- that was a really fun paper. Um, so adversarial policy is sort of a great example of, of how Chai's research gets done in practice. So before adversarial policies, we knew adversarial attacks to RL systems existed through like interventions on the observations. So you would add some sort of adversarial noise to the pixel observations. And this would get like an agent playing in Pong to like miss the ball. Um, And from a security perspective, this is a bit 
of an unrealistic attack model for real-world systems. Like, if an attacker can change the pixels of your observations, it probably has root access to your hardware. So you probably already, like, lost the attack defense game. Uh, but even from a robustness angle, it's sort of unclear whether we could expect to make our agents robust to these sorts of, uh, like, physically impossible inputs. Uh, so adversarial policies was hoping to find more realistic and physically possible attacks through learning the policies of like other agents that are also in the environment. Um, and so we find that these policies uh, can successfully degrade the performance of some target policy, uh, and they do so in sort of a way that humans would have been robust to. So we focused on like some agents, uh, for instance, in like a soccer game, where one agent's trying to score a goal by like kicking a ball into a net, and the other agent's trying to, like, is a goalie and trying to block the goal. Uh, and so we, we trained a policy for the goalie just using, uh, like, off-the-shelf RL and found that it could uh, trick the kicker into, like, forgetting how to kick the ball um, by just sort of, like, squirming on the ground in a way that most humans would just, like, ignore. Um, so, yeah, we we found that, like, this, uh, the policies that come... Uh, came out of it like looked particularly like ill fit for uh, for the environment, yet still performed really well against the like RL policies. Yeah, I really enjoyed the videos with this one. There's some cool videos uh, listeners might want to check out. And it seems to me like you could defeat this uh, current day AI with just you know just finding the right dance move, and they're just so surprised they just fall <laughs> over. Yeah, I definitely recommend checking out the videos. They're, they're super fun to watch. Uh, it really feels like the the target is trying to to do the right thing and like sort of knows what it's what it's getting at, but like ends up tripping over itself. Um, actually, one of my my favorite um, interactions from this thing is I think last year at NURPS, there's some panel that Michael Lippman was on where he tries to imitate what the what the agents are doing. Um, yeah, I, I think anything out of Michael <laughs> Lippman is. is is entertaining to watch so i recommend I it totally agree and he was our second guest on the show and his episode's amazing and um but i i think i missed that uh, i miss seeing him do that uh to dance <laughs> on stage so I'll, I'll look for that um if we can move on to game theory so um i guess like a lot of people like my first intro to game theory was hearing about prisoner's dilemma uh, maybe in high school and then in the axelrod uh tournament and when I first encountered it, it seemed like really simple. And I guess now I think deceptively simple. And so I couldn't really see how it could be of any use um, mm-hmm. or, or practical use. And then and then later on, I encountered it in more uh, complex settings and like DeepMind's work and AlphaStar and Natasha Jake's uh, social influence paper was the, the first mm-hmm. episode on the show. And I got a, I started to get a new appreciation for the whole uh, concept. But but you can see my my exposure has been pretty shallow. But my sense is there's like it's a pretty deep universe in in, in game theory. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I I think that um, game theory is sort of getting at something pretty fundamental to um, I guess how uh, how the world works. Um, like games are everywhere, right? Like. Uh, like our, our society is, is really just a bunch of, bunch of agents playing a bunch of different, different games that we've sort of collectively agreed are, uh, are the way that we want to operate our society. Um, and I guess there's a lot of interesting things you can learn about sort of what, uh, what behaviors those games motivate and what sort of behaviors can exist sort of in equilibrium when we have the game set up sort of the way that we do. So can you give us a uh, like a hint about the structure of game theory? Like what kinds of major topics and, and common applications uh, come up in game theory? Um, yeah, so it's a really wide field. Um, yeah, so I guess the, the core intuitions behind game theory sort of started uh, like with von Neumann and, and Nash back with like uh, with uh, I guess the Nash equilibria is the thing that most people point to. Um, and that's sort of one of the like most productive concepts that we have gotten for understanding how like um, social science and like economics and these sorts of like fields really, really work. Uh, it's like a really good predictive model for 
uh, what um, how what sort of behavior you should, you should expect out of multi-agent interactions. Um, but I guess from AI, we're sort of coming from a bit of a different perspective. We don't as much want predictive models of multi-agent systems that already exist, but we want to know how uh, to build AI systems which perform well in the presence of other agents. Um, and so we sort of come from a different perspective than most of the literature and game theory is sort of directed at. Um, and because of that, I think it's somewhat hard to directly apply the tools of game theory in AI without doing a little bit of, of a translation. Um, I guess some parts of the field that require less translation is, um, so Joe Halpern actually does a lot of really good work at the intersection of AI and game theory, um, specifically his stuff on reasoning about knowledge. Um, or, yeah, he has like a few textbooks written on this stuff. Uh, and it sort of like takes more of the, um, instead of like most games taking like a third person perspective of like trying to figure out what these two agents will do, um, given that they're both rational, um, Halpern's work more takes a first person perspective and says something more like, if I have these sorts of given beliefs, what should I do? Um, and then sort of derives like what a multi-agent system would do coming that, coming after that, if that makes sense. So is that the area that you're most interested in in terms of game theory? Yeah, I guess I'm I'm mostly interested in trying to come up with ways of thinking about multi-agent systems uh, in the presence of AI that aren't confusing um, or aren't as confusing as the ways that I, I think we currently think of them. And I think Halpern's work is is a good uh, a good step in that direction. Do you think of game theory as like a very practical thing or more a theoretical tool? Uh, well, I think it depends on how you use it. Um, so I think that if you're trying to analyze a multi-agent system, then trying to figure out where the Nash equilibria are is like a very uh, a very practical first step to understanding what's going to what's going to happen in the long run. Um, I think. Also, if you're trying to just get a general understanding about how these sorts of systems work more broadly, uh, the, you can do a lot of good for yourself by learning a lot of this theory and trying to see how it applies to the real world. Um, and so I guess the second brand is, ends up being a lot more theoretical, um, and a lot less directly applicable. But I think that the, the way that you ought to think about a lot of this work is less trying to uh, less trying to like come up with particular things that you should do in particular applications and more trying to like build good intuitions about how to think about these systems. Okay. So do you think like we, like you mentioned how, um, you know, we're playing games all the time in society and in social situations and like, are, are those things worth modeling? Like, um, is there any hope of quantifying what we're really doing? Um, I guess maybe that's clear in economics where you can attach dollar values to things, but, um, I guess I'm, I guess when I, when I think of that, I just think, well, everything's so fuzzy. Like, do people know why they're doing what they're doing? Um, whereas these payoff matrices are so just nice and neat. Yeah, for sure. Like, I, I think that game theory, uh, that there's an interesting thing in game theory where the better the agents get, the more game theory applies to them. Like game theory is sort of one of the base assumptions is that the agents involved are rational and they're behaving like well with respect to whatever their beliefs are. Um, and the, the stronger these agents get, or the more capable these, the agents get that are involved, the more game theory uh, is predictive of what they're going to do. So you should expect game theory to apply less to like individual interpersonal interactions between like two arbitrary humans and more to like the behavior of corporations, the behavior of governments, the behavior of like, uh, like really high performing people in different fields. So I guess one of the, uh, so I, I guess you mentioned how, how this applies to economics. I think a lot of economics is built on top of game theory, but I guess it also applies to other areas of society. For instance, politics you could analyze how uh like for instance the first past the post voting system that we have in a, in a lot of countries um 
influences the sorts of political parties that would develop. And you can find that the sort of, uh, the sort of system that we have in the US, uh, if you analyze the equilibria, it seems almost inevitable that we would end up with a two party system. And so it's sort of interesting how, um, e- even though, like, I guess many of the framers didn't want us to end up in a two party system, sort of the structures that they left behind, um, sort of unintentionally made that inevitable. And so I think there's a lot, lot to learn, um, in terms of like how we design our institutions and how we design like incentives, um, to make it more likely that the, the things that we actually want our society to do are sort of the natural outcomes of like humans following their own incentives locally. So that kind of sounds like a mechanism design thing. Yeah, it's definitely a mechanism design thing. I, I think all all of of norms and uh, like institutional design and stuff like this is all all mechanism design. So I guess if um, Von Neumann and, and Nash were the founding fathers, they they we might have had a, a slightly different uh, outcome. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that there's a we definitely would have had a different outcome. I'm not sure if they would have forgotten something else that our founding fathers <laughs> actually understood. Um, like, I, I don't know. I, I respect the, I think it was really difficult to design a government at that time. Um, because that, that was before we knew, like, like the reason that it, it causes a two party system wasn't really known at that time. And so it would have been very difficult for them to even, even anticipate that, I guess. Yeah. They, they, they don't, didn't have millions of trajectories to learn from, I guess. Yeah. They didn't have millions of trajectories to learn from. So I wonder sometimes when these payoff matrices, like where do they come from? Uh, they seem a bit like handed down from on high, kind of like the rewards in RL seem a little bit like that too. Can we deduce um, these matrices by observing uh, behavior? Is that kind of like a inverse game theory or inverse RL? Yeah. So I guess the problem of reward of like where rewards come from is like pretty, pretty deep. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like decision theoretic and philosophical work on that. Um, actually, inverse game theory is a is a thing that exists. I know there's a I think a paper under that title that that does some work in trying to do inverse game theory. Um, it seems to actually be harder than inverse um, reinforcement learning directly um, because of incentives to not be honest about your own intentions. Uh, and so it seems to be even even more difficult than than we otherwise would have uh, had it. Um, but yeah, I, I think like where where rewards come from and where, um, yeah, like like what the definition is of of like what a good action is is, is something that's fairly fundamental, like a some, somewhat fundamental problem in. Uh, I guess not just AI, but like economics and decision theory and game theory more broadly. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that that more more work should be done in that area. Um, but it, I guess it's sort of hard to figure figure out where which way's up. So I read that uh, Rand Corporation famously used game theory to plan strategy for nuclear war, and uh, and I don't know if it's causal, but we haven't had a nuclear war yet, so maybe it worked. But if if we look at the at the biggest global problems that we face today in terms of tragedies of the commons, like the ocean and carbon emissions, competition for resources, can game theory provide insight into solving these kind of big um, problems? Yeah. It, so it's funny that you mentioned the the Rand Corporation because I've I've ended up uh, reading a lot of their papers, like uh, like on on different uh, different occasions. I, I found. Yeah, like a lot of the fundamental work in game theory happened in the Rand Corporation. But yeah, the the hope is that you can you can use game theory to sort of find uh, find solutions to these problems. Uh, I know that game theory has has been successful in a lot of these applications, but the ones that I know more about are more on the algorithmic side. Uh, so I know that like mechanism design has been successful in like. Uh, designing spectrum auctions for like auctioning off different parts of um, like the radio wave bands um, the US government was like selling like to different um, like radio stations to determine like who could play what songs on what what bands um, 
And that was pretty successful. Uh, there's also auctions that happen whenever you see an ad when you search on Google. Um, and those are usually designed through some sort of mechanism design uh, function. Um, at a more broad societal level, I know that people who think about these sorts of things do so oftentimes in the lens of game theory, but I'm not sure if they end up doing so, um, like actually trying to get to the point where they model the exact situation in terms of an explicit game. I think it's more that they use games as a way of coming to an understanding about like what the sorts of dynamics of the system they are interacting with, how, how that system behaves. And uh, I think that they often use those intuitions to uh, better help like the decisions that they have to make. Um, yeah, I guess from an AI perspective, uh, we... I think it's going to be very difficult to make progress in uh, like human robot interaction or in like multi-agent interaction without understanding a bit more about how game theory works. Because I guess with humans, like there's, there's some sort of innate knowledge about how to interact with other humans that, that we like all have and sort of, um, I guess either born with or like learn in a way that like seems to actually work in practice where there doesn't seem like there's any reason why that should come about naturally through like the mechanisms that we have in RL. And so uh, I guess what human societies sort of do naturally, we might have to do intentionally. And I guess to do that well uh, would, I guess, the easiest way I can tell to making systems that do that well would be to first try to figure out how humans do it and then see how we can replicate those sorts of interactions in AI systems. Would you say game theory has some kind of grand challenge? Is there some giant goal um, that we're working towards or is it is it more um, a set of axioms and like is it kind of solved? Or are we working on it still? Um. So I'm not too uh, well-versed in like the traditional game theory tradition. Um, so I'm, I'm mostly self-taught. I come from an AI background um, or like a CS theory background maybe. Um, and I haven't interacted too much with uh, game theorists, mostly because they like work in other areas than I do. Um, so I don't know what... Uh, what grand challenges they're, they're particularly looking towards. But I think that in AI, there are, are a lot of open problems that we don't really know how to address. So, so in particular, uh, it seems that, so a lot of the multi-agent interaction sort of work come, I guess, sort of comes from the idea that we're going to make an agent that solves like a Nash equilibrium. And then we're going to put that agent in an environment with a human and that should just work well. Uh, and this works well for games like Go and chess uh, and poker um, where there's sort of zero sum and solving the sort of Nash equilibria gives you a policy that performs like well by human standards. But in many other games, uh, the Nash equilibria sort of don't correspond to the uh, sorts of behaviors that we would actually want out of our systems. Uh, for instance, if if we were trying to uh, make a poker system that was even better than the Nash Equilibria poker systems, we could make ones that actually tried to read the human, like like read your opponents to see if they were bluffing and base your strategy off of that. Now, a Nash Equilibria system wouldn't do that sort of thing. It would just behave in a way that is not exploitable and over time uh, gets reward through um, just being very consistent about that. Uh, but humans don't play poker optimally. And so a system could do even better than the Nash Equilibria solution by using the fact that humans are bad at bluffing and trying to read whether or not they're bluffing and base their strategy accordingly. So let's talk about your uh, new paper, Arctic. That's Accumulating Risk Capital Through Investing in Cooperation, 2021, Roman et al. Can you give us the gist of this paper? 
Yeah, so this is joint work with uh, Charlotte Roman and myself. Uh, the goal of this paper was to train agents that would be suitable to deploy into sequential social dilemmas in a sort of zero-shot way, uh, with the ability to hopefully cooperate while maintaining safety so that you aren't going to be exploited too much by other agents. Um, and so what we notice is that there's sort of a fundamental trade-off between uh, cooperation and safety. Um, so whenever you cooperate, you risk being defected against, which like lowers the, um, like causes you to have some amount of safety risk. Um, but what we show in this paper is that this trade-off isn't really severe and that in taking a very small amount of risk in terms of trying to cooperate, you can get huge returns in uh, the other person cooperating back with you um, with like a very low amount of risk to safety. Uh, so prior work in this direction showed that uh, epsilon safe agent agents risk no more than they have won an expectation. So if you're trying to be epsilon safe, uh, you can risk like epsilon on the first step. And then if you ever have won anything better than what your baseline uh, reward would be um, in like a worst case way, then you can risk all of that reward as well without actually losing any uh any of your like safety um and so we call what the agent is willing to risk uh their risk capital and we say that everything an agent wins in expectation is added to this pool of risk capital so our agent invests this risk capital in cooperation um every turn and by only cooperating proportional to how much risk capital they actually have accumulated this maintains their safety so that they actually don't end up risking more over time. Um, and so if they're with an agent that actually reciprocates, reciprocates this sort of cooperation, then the probability that they actually reciprocate is proportional to the probability that we cooperate. So this leads to sort of a proportional return in our investment over time, and this re results in sort of an exponential increase in cooperation. Um, and so we call this method a... Uh, 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 accumulating risk capital through investing in cooperation because uh, the idea is that you you just invest your cooperation and it gives you sort of these exponential returns. Um, and so this is sort of a different conclusion than you would reach if you analyze this in sort of this equilibrium frame that we were talking about before, um, where in, in sort of just like an, um, trying to find a policy that's in equilibrium, um, you would always... Uh, you would always defect every time and you would never risk cooperating because cooperating would only ever uh, hurt you in equilibrium. Um, but in this paper, we uh, are just trying to reveal how extreme the trade-off is here so that if you actually even move like an epsilon amount outside of the equilibria, that that risk that you've done for doing that, um, that that risk is... Uh, returned back to you uh, in terms of like an exponential reward in by your opponent deciding to cooperate more and more over time. Uh, and so really this idea of trying to like be 100% rational and like stay exactly at the, the Nash equilibria, which means just like defect whenever you're in these sorts of like prison dilemma settings, really hurts you a lot more than you would expect. So it seems like, is there an aspect of tit for tat in there? in Arctic in terms of um, responding to a, defa a defection? Yeah, so, so there's definitely a, a way that it is similar to tip for tap. So early on, it will it will like be cautious in, in cooperating and like not cooperate that much. If you start cooperating with it, it will at some point start cooperating all the time. Um, and at that point, it'll start behaving like tip for tat does at the beginning. But if it is defected against then uh it starts its risk capital starts going down it's it's accumulated some some harm to it and so it's less likely to take risks in the future and thus it will defect so um in the long run it sort of behaves a bit like tit for tat um and it has the same sort of incentive structure where if you know that you're against an arctic agent you want to cooperate because that will make the agent in the long run cooperate with you more so what was the state of this area um, before this this paper? Yeah, so I guess in terms of, so we sort of combined two different threads. One was uh, 
safe policies in multi-agent learning. Um, and so this was work by uh, Jansfried et al., um, who uh, showed that a safe policy will risk what they've won in expectation. Um, and our observation is that when you combine this uh, with like the dynamics of a sequential social dilemma, then you get this sort of exponential increase in what you can risk uh, because cooperation allows you to uh, to get a significant amount of rewards and expectation, and thus you can like invest more and more over time. Uh, in the sequential social dilemmas literature, it's a really um, the the idea of like pr- the prison dilemma is a really old idea and really broad field. So there's a lot of related work over there. Um, I guess more specifically in multi-agent learning and trying to make agents that will cooperate well in, in sequential social dilemmas. Um, the work that comes to mind is the work coming out of Joel Liebel's lab. Um, specifically, I guess, the social influence and intrinsic motivation work that I think uh, Natasha Jakes talked to you about at some point. Um, and yeah, I guess there's a lot of other work in, in that area as well that we mentioned in the paper. To, for me and other people who might not be expert at reading papers like this. I wonder if you could just maybe step through the main sections of the paper and give us a line or two about what is happening um, in each section and, and kind of how it builds over the course of the paper. Would that be okay? Yeah, so the, the paper is sort of structured around these these two extremes. Um, so in one section, we uh, define what we sort of mean by safety. Um, so safety is like, trying to be robust to the worst case that your opponent can can throw at you. Um, and so you have some sort of baseline reward that you uh, can guarantee that you get regardless of what your opponent does. And being safe or being approximately safe is um, maintaining that you keep that level of reward or maintaining that you approximately keep that level of reward. Um, so in the next section, we sort of like talk about the other uh, extreme of this trade-off, which is the the cooperation um, inducing beliefs. Um, so you uh, many of the natural things that you'd want to do in sequential social dilemmas, like that humans would find natural to do, um, are behaviors that would promote cooperation in their opponent. Um, so. These are things like cooperating only if the other person cooperates or like tit for tat. Um, and if you think that your opponent is, is plausibly going to behave in one of these ways, then, um, we call these things cooperation inducing beliefs. Um, and so we sort of make this, uh, point out this trade off between on one hand trying to be safe against the worst case sorts of opponents and on the other hand trying to have good performance against opponents who are trying to promote cooperation in sorts of the way in the way that they're structured. Um, and so in the third section, we sort of talk about how this trade-off works in practice and like characterize the, the tension between these two ideas. Um, and the, the core of that section is the proof about um, trying to characterize how, how bad this trade-off is. So we uh, assume that we have some amount of like epsilon uh, risk that we're willing to to tolerate. And we show that given this sort of epsilon risk, that uh, the amount of cooperation or the amount of reward that we can achieve against cooperation promoting beliefs um, is exponentially growing in that up until we hit the cap of like both players cooperating all the time. In which point, like, we just cooperate forever. Um, and so what this shows is that the, the tension between these two, uh, these two ideas isn't actually that strong. Uh, and so the rest of the paper is, um, trying to, uh, trying to make the, uh, ground that proof out in an actual algorithm that behaves that way. Um, and running experiments to see how that algorithm performs in practice, both against um, itself and against some other natural agents. 
Yeah. Speaking of which, so can you can you um, help us understand how it how it plays against itself and and other common agent types like like tit for tat or or always I guess always defect, always cooperate. If it's against an agent that always cooperates, then it will accumulate risk capital very quickly because it's basically beating its baseline and expectation basically every turn. And so it'll very quickly cooperate every turn. If it's against somebody who always defects, then um, on the first turn, it will spend all its risk capital. Uh, the defecting agent won't give it any of it back. And so it will never invest anymore. And so they'll end up in defect defect. Um, if it's against itself, then it will risk a little bit of uh, its capital at the beginning. Uh, this epsilon amount that it starts with. And then the other version of it will sort of get that in as like um, more like that corresponds to the other agent sort of beating its baseline um, because the other agent got some like was cooperated with when it was expecting it to be defected against. And so now that agent is more likely to cooperate with um, the first agent on the next turn. And so this sort of creates a feedback loop between the two agents where both are um, both become more and more cooperative over, over time until eventually both of them cooperate and they just cooperate for the rest of time. So it sounds like the, the, the golden rule of Arctic is something like, uh, let me see, uh, is it something like be nice to others unless they're not nice to you too often or something? How would you put it? Um, in terms of the golden rule. Um, it seems like a, a conditional golden rule, right? <laughs> it's a little yeah, more it's conditional. A, it, it's a conditional golden rule. Um, at least try to be nice to others. And if, uh, if they respond by being nice to you, then keep, keep going. Cool. I, I like that as a, uh, um, as a rule for life. So it, it's, it's fine. I, I guess generally, um, a lot of people interpret game theory in like, um, very, uh, in a very like zero sum lens. Like a lot of people look at game theory and their main takeaways are like, yeah, you should always defect in the person's dilemma. Like you should sort of like ruthlessly follow your own goals and like not, not care too much about, uh, what other people are doing, um, or how they're, how they're doing, I guess. And I guess this is sort of trying to push back against that, that a lot of the, the working game theory is actually showing that though cooperation isn't, uh, isn't like maybe the natural first thing you would go to in terms of like what the theory says. Uh, it's actually justified in a lot of, in a lot of scenarios and that agents that are more cooperative tend to perform better for selfish reasons in the, in the long term. And so I guess this is, uh, I guess adding to the stack of, of papers who have been trying to, or have been motivating selfish people to cooperate out of their own self interests which I think is like a good, a good path towards a better world. Nice. Okay. Can you tell us how, um, how you evaluate it? What are the evalu evaluation environments like? Yeah. So we started by evaluating in, in a few um, uh, matrix game worlds. Um, you, so we evaluated sort of two versions of the Arctic um, algorithm. One where everything is computed exactly. Um, so it's just like a closed form solution, not really using any sort of RL. Um, and that sort of did ro robustly what you would imagine um, against like the same thing that I described against all of the opponents. Um, and then still in the matrix games, we uh, tried doing the same thing with RL and found that uh, it was able to learn uh, the policy fairly well, such that it, it ended up cooperating with uh, cooperative agents and defecting against defective agents. Um, but uh, it was... Uh, a bit unstable against itself. And uh, we sort of left it to future work trying to scale this up into more environments. Um, so I think where this is at now, the theory is pretty solid. Uh, it seems that uh, it's fairly clear that this is a, a principle that you can see applying to most cooperative domains, regardless of like how high dimensional they are. Um, but the there's still some work needed in terms of making uh, the approach stable when you apply RL to it. 
And I think there's a lot of interesting work in terms of trying to figure out how to how to scale this up in a scale, like a, a stable way. So if that was done, then could um, something like Arctic be used for, for example, for uh, LIBO's Social Dilemma games? Yeah, so I'm I'm hoping that we can get it working for for those. There, we were um, trying that out a bit. I'm not sure if we're going to continue with it uh, just because of uh, other other commitments. But yeah, I, I don't see any reason why this this wouldn't be able to be applied directly to to those settings. Um, we're hoping that it also applies to real world settings, like uh, for instance, self driving cars trying to determine like like. It's sort of a prison dilemma when one of them uh, decides whether or not to cut another one off. Like, it could cut it off and, like, save a little bit of time. But in doing so, it pro- it has some risk of causing a traffic jam, which is going to, like, slow down basically everybody. Um, so, yeah, I was hoping that you could use these sorts of techniques sort of in the real-world domains where we're trying to release... Um, AI either in the presence of other humans or in the presence of other AI and make sort of more cooperative dynamics out of it. Okay, let's move on to your uh, your next paper paired. That was Emergent Complexity and Zero-Shot Transfer via Unsupervised Environment Design. Dennis et al. Um, 2020. So I really enjoyed your, um, your virtual poster session at NeurIPS uh, 2020 for this. And as f- for the audience, that's actually how we first met. And, and when I saw that, I was like, right away, I was like, wow, this brings together so many interesting things and in such an elegant way. So this, this really got my attention. Um, <laughs> Thanks. So this is, yeah, you're welcome. And thank you so much again for being here. This is awesome. So can you tell us about this paper? What is going on here? Yeah. So uh, so first of all, this paper is joint work with my uh, co-first author, Natasha Jakes uh, and Eugene Vinitsky, who are both really vital for getting this off the ground. Um, so the goal here is to automatically generate environments which you can train RL agents in, um, both for the purposes of providing a good curricula and for the purposes of promoting transfer to other environments. Um, so this is a, a very general framework, but as a running example, uh, we'll just consider uh, a maze environment where uh, the agent must navigate to the goal by navigating around blocks placed in the environment. Um a natural approach to this would be to, to sample random environments by placing blocks randomly. But we find that this doesn't work very well. An agent trained in this way will have a hard time finding its way out of a room. Um, and the intuition here is that this agent has probably never seen a wall before. And so it doesn't really know how to behave when it sees any sort of structure. Um, so we sort of want a way to generate complex structured environments. And so for me, this brings to mind the idea of self-play, which is successful in chess and Go for generating really complex structured ways of moving pieces. Um, and so in this setting, we tried adversarial training. Uh, but this leads to an adversary that generates mazes, which are just completely unsolvable. And so that doesn't really solve the problem either. Um, and so we're trying to find a way to motivate an adversary to generate difficult but solvable environments. Um, and we found that we could do this by adding another agent, which we call the antagonist, which is also trying to solve the generated environments. Um, so for clarity, we'll call the original agent that we were trying to train uh, the protagonist. Then the adversary, which is generating the environments, is trying to generate environments that the antagonist performs well in and the protagonist doesn't perform well in. So the adversary gets the antagonist reward minus the protagonist reward. Um, and so... In this structure, the adversary is then motivated to make environments that the antagonist solves um, so that they are actually solvable, uh, but it's also motivated to make them hard enough that the protagonist doesn't solve them. Um, and so the adversary is motivated to generate also the simplest environments that the protagonist can't solve, since the adversary would solve them faster and get more reward. Um, so as the pr- protagonist then gets better and better through this, um, this sort of results in a natural curriculum of increasing complexity over time. Um, and it also promotes transfer because the adversary is motivated to find the environments where the protagonist would perform the most poorly. So this idea of protagonist and antagonist, is this a, a new dichotomy that you came up uh, with for this work? And where did this idea come from? Yeah, so... Um, I guess originally I got the idea through trying to come up with an ar- architecture to optimize minimax regret, uh, which is a solution concept from the decisions under ignorance literature. Um, 
And so the idea of having two agents solve the environment uh, can sort of directly be read out of the definition of minimax regret. Uh, and then I guess Sergey came up with the naming convention, which definitely made it easier to communicate about. Can you um, tell us more about how the environment is generated? Like, what does the action space um, of the adversary look like? What is it doing? Yeah, so the uh, the adversary is uh, is an LSTM, which initially gets a random input and places a block on each turn. And on subsequent moves, it sees all of the previous blocks that it has placed um, when it decides to place another one. Um, and so if you want to see this in action, there are some videos of this generation process and solving the mazes on our YouTube channel. Um, but yeah, we found that there were definitely some tricks to get this to work, right? And there, there were some architectures we tried that didn't quite work. Um, and so I think there's like definitely room for improvement in terms of how, how to go about generating environments. And I think there's a lot of interesting work to, to happen there. So we touched on auto curricula um, back in episode one, again, with Natasha Jakes, um, one of your uh, first authors on this paper. And um, I, I gather that Pear is doing automatic curricula generation. Would you consider it auto curricula in the, in the Libo sense? Or could you contra uh, contrast um, paired with, with that idea of auto curricula? Yeah, we, we definitely would consider it um, to, to be an auto curricula in like the Libo sense. And uh, yeah, we were, we were a bit inspired by that paper, actually. Uh, we, I think originally when I was thinking of this architecture of like this game between the multiple agents, uh, I didn't initially realize uh, the sort of curricula that would come out of it. And I think it was actually Natasha after like having something like this paper in the back of her mind that realized sort of like what can happen when we, when we run this. And then can we contrast paired with something like OpenAI ProcGen? I guess, um, ProcGen is going more for some more for generalization and maybe not so much like um, focusing on the curriculum of increasing difficulty. Do you, do you see them as related or or totally not? Yeah, so I, I guess there's sort of two dimensions here. One is that um, that paired sort of lets you get around having to describe um, this complex distribution of environments, um, and so ProcGen is sort of taking the approach of just um, specifying this, right? Like making a procedure that will actually generate such a distribution. Um, so they're a bit different in that respect because Paired is sort of trying to get around the problem that um, ProcGen is trying to solve. Um, I guess they um, Paired also does a bit to help generalization and I guess sort of in a way that um, ProcGen isn't um, in the sense that it tries to uh, get more experiment, experience from environments that our agent performs less well in, right? And so in doing that, it promotes some sort of robustness um, more, more strongly than just randomly sampling a large distribution of environments because we're focusing on like specifically more worst case environments. Cool. And, and then can we also compare it to like Poet by Jeff Kloon? That was the uh, paired open-ended trailblazer um, system. How would you describe like similarities or differences between paired and Poet? Yeah. So, so we were also pretty inspired by Poet when, when making this. Um, so they're actually fairly distinct. Um, I guess the main similarity is that Poet uh, is also generating environments for, in which an agent can train, um, but the the mechanism by which it uh, makes new environments and like comes up with new agents to train in them um, is like a bit more evolutionary. Um, I mean, it's like Jeff Kloon's whole agenda is like really interesting. I really uh, recommend checking it out if you haven't. Um, but yeah, the it's. Uh, I guess brushing a lot of the details under the rug, I guess one, one difference is that, uh, poet, uh, is more focused on actual worst case. Um, like if it's optimizing for something, the, the optimization for the, um, environment generation is more of a worst case sort of optimization. Um, and, in doing that, it sort of is motivated to generate environments which are unsolvable. 
And sort of to correct for that, there's a thing in, in Poet which uh, tries to, to target environments to like be at a certain threshold of difficultness with respect mm-hmm. to how likely it is for the, the previous agent to solve it. Um, and so this, this makes it, this works in their setting. Um, so they, they, they do get this sort of increase in complexity and they actually get some really cool results. I saw like one video of like their agent just like sort of like diving off of a cliff and actually being able to land in the right way. That's pretty cool. Um, but I think that like the, the net, the need to have this sort of constant, um, that like, uh, maintains like the difficulty, right? And like, um, tuning that well for the environment, um, makes poet like more difficult to generalize to, to different environments. We actually had a hard time implementing something that was sort of like that baseline in our environment. Um, whereas paired sort of gets away without these sorts of, uh, these sorts of thresholds. Um, so I guess I'm, our hope is that paired is going to be able to be more easily applied to more environments. So if I understand this right, it seems like paired is, is sort of like an important insight that now that you have it, um, you can do these, you can do these, make these new types of curricula with these, with this new method. Uh, and it, and it kind of stands on its own. Is that, is it, is that the case? It kind of solves the problem or, or what might be left uh, for future work here? Yeah. So I, I, I guess I'm of two minds of this. On one hand, I think that the observation that we can generate difficult but solvable environments with paired um, is like a fairly like important step. Um, at the same time, I am sort of overwhelmed by the, the number of different uh like extensions I can imagine for this. And a lot of them are like fairly different from paired. Um, I think that paired, uh, I guess sort of opens the door for me to think about a lot of different architectures um, for using these sorts of like multi-agent training regimes to come up with these sorts of increasing complexities. Um, I guess they, they sort of fall into two camps. One is like ways of making paired itself more stable. So this could be like different ways of parameterizing the adversary or um, different uh, different ways of setting up the paired game. So I guess in the paper, we, we also explored um, versions of symmetric paired where the adversary or the antagonist and protagonist um, roles are swapped depending on how agents are performing. We also tried some population variants and all these had like stable performance, but like a bit different properties. And I think there's a lot that can be done in those regimes making them more stable and um, making like coming up with ways of, uh, of yeah, I guess just making them more stable and, and work in more settings. Um, I guess there's this other set of, of future works that I am pretty, also pretty excited about where instead of trying to solve for like a minimax regret style objective, like those techniques are, you could try to solve for like more complicated things um, or just different things. And I think that, um, yeah, I, I guess there's a lot of different future works we could get into there. Um, but yeah, I guess it suffices to say that I, I think there's a lot of, uh, of follow-up work that, that could be done in paired that isn't just like a direct, like a direct solidification of, of what is already there. So let's move on to another paper you co-authored, um, the EPIC paper, Quantifying Differences in Reward Functions. That's Gleave et al., uh, 2020. And so this seems like a kind of a surprising result. Um, it says here in the abstract, uh, a distance to quantify the difference between two reward functions directly without training a policy. That seems magical. Um, can you tell us a bit how that, uh, about how that works? Yeah, so Adam Gleave is, is again the first author on this. Um, the the motivation for this comes from the fact that real world applications um, are such that like they don't come with a, a pre specified reward function. I guess this is again what we were talking about earlier, where like the reward function in RL we often think of it as like coming from on high, uh, but in real world applications, like somebody has to like either write that down or like learn it from data and often this process could go wrong. And so if we have have done this like multiple times, like a few people have written down like their guesses or like we've learned a few different ones, it would be good to check to see whether they're actually 
even saying like saying to train for this same thing or training for similar things. Um, because if like you, you get some, a reward function from a bunch of different sources and they say different things, then maybe that's uh, an indication that you should go back to the drawing board and see, like try to figure out what, what you actually want out of the situation. Um, but the, the way of, of comparing reward functions right now is sort of checking how the policy works on some test environment. Um, and that, the performance of a reward function on a test environment doesn't necessarily uh, transfer to the training environment. So I guess for an example of this, so if we have a reward function that rewards you, like rewards a car for staying near the speed limit, um, and we have another reward function which rewards you uh, for like a high reward for getting to your, to your destination and like some penalty for crashing, these two could give very similar behaviors in on like a dry road in the middle of the summer um, where they just like both maintain the same speed for the whole whole trip but very different things in winter when the first reward function would just like maintain the speed limit and probably crash where the second one would be more careful um, and so in order to like try to like suss out these differences in order to like allow the developers to go back and figure out what they actually mean um, we would want to be able to compare the reward functions directly. And I guess the natural way of doing this would just be to do the correlation between the reward functions. Like these two reward functions are just like a vector of, of like numbers over states. Um, and so you can just like try to compare the, the two vectors. Yeah, one way to co compare two reward functions would be to do uh, the correlation between two reward functions over states. So like you can think of reward functions just like a vector where like every state just has some sort of number. And you can just compare those two vectors and see how close they are. But the problem is that like vector, like reward functions just aren't like, shouldn't just be thought of as arbitrary vectors. They have some sort of structure with them. Um, so particularly like reward functions don't really like, shouldn't be thought as of different if they're just like different shapings of each other. Um, and so like comparing them in just like the, like as if they're two vectors, would make them very vulnerable to like any sort of reward shaping. Um, and so what we do to fix this is we just canonicalize the reward functions to find like sort of a representative sample of what the, like this reward function is that's sort of immune to uh, these sorts of reward shaping terms. And then we compare the distances between reward functions there. Uh, and so we can show that doing this distance metric gives us a linear regret bound on the transfer performance when a policy is trained by one reward function and tested on another. So any hints on uh, on what you're up to next, uh, Michael? Yeah, so um, sort of in the same uh, vein of the, the paired work where uh, paired sort of avoids the need to specify this like hard distribution of mazes sort of like proc gen approaches would. I'm working on thinking about other ways of avoiding specifying like hard parts of the problems that we want to solve um, and hopefully finding ways of doing this without the system's performance totally degrading. Cool. Um, and besides what you're working on or planning to work on, can you share uh, anything about other stuff in RL lately that you find really interesting? Yeah. So I guess sort of in the vein of the stuff I'm thinking about working on, I've been recently thinking about how to specify problems. Um, and I guess two approaches that have been recently releasing this um, like area are uh, the consequences of like misaligned AI by Zhuang et al., uh, which studies the effects of leaving features out of a reward function, and conservative agency by Turner et al., which proposes a way of making AI systems which mitigate, mitigate these unintended side effects of like leaving stuff out of, out of your reward function. Um, and I think both of these are like sort of good steps in terms of trying to make our methods less vulnerable to misspecification of the problems that we want to solve. Because I think the problems that we actually want to solve, um, like, like climate change and like poverty and like, like economic issues and stuff like this. Um, oftentimes these are really difficult to actually specify. And so if we make problem specification or make systems that are less vulnerable to misspecification of the problem specifications, then, uh, I think we'll be able to apply our like really good AI techniques to more important pressing problems. 
Michael Dennis, this has been fantastic. Super fascinating for me. Um, it hasn't been the shortest interview we've done. I really appreciate your patience with that. And, uh, and thanks so much for sharing your time and your insight with, with me and our audience today. Thank you, Michael Dennis. Yeah, thanks. It's been great. Notes and links for this episode are at talkrl.com. If you like this show, I need your support. You can help in a few ways. One, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Subscriptions make a big difference. Two, follow us on Twitter at TalkRLPodcast. We love retweets. Three, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think we deserve five stars, let us know on Twitter what we could do better. 